Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, covering America one story at a time. Weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. Hi, I'm Julie Lifcott-Hames, the host of Getting In. I'm the former dean of freshmen at Stanford and the author of How to Raise an Adult. Getting In is a new podcast from Panoply, following a group of high school seniors through the college admission process. And right now is crunch time, especially for students applying early decision. You know, when you put it all together, it's a lot. I don't really sleep. I drink a lot of black coffee. But, you know, I'm, I'm stressed, but I'm, I could be worse. I could be bored. That's what you'll hear on the new episode of Getting In from Panoply. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the B-Side for Episode 15 of our national conversation about conversations about race. The White People Do Journalism Like This episode. I'm Tanner Colby here in Panoply's New York studios with my regular co-discussant Raquel Cepeda. Hello, hello, Raquel. hello, hello. And joining us is Slate staff writer Aisha Harris, uh, who writes about culture and many other things and is here to join us for our next show uh, where we talk about her piece on the television industry. But she's here to join us for the B-side. She's here to week. tease us. Yes. And tease y'all. Tease you. So last week we discussed the lack of voices of color in the American newsroom and the fluidity of gender and race, as written about in the New York Times Magazine by their critic at large, Wesley Morris. And here to share with us your thoughts, voice memos, emails, and other forms of communication is our producer, A.C. Valdez. How you doing, Tanner? I'm doing well, sir. What do we got? So Raquel last time asked listeners for their alternatives to the word diversity. Oh, good. Which I'm going to be saying, but I know you all have problems with. <laughs> so we're going to get some instant reactions to people's suggestions for alternatives to the word diversity. At AJ Willikers tweeted us, polydemographic. Nope. Say that three times fast. Polydemographic, polydemographic. Oh, see, I can't say it once. <laughs> no, here, Twice. The, the, problem, the problem with that is the same problem with the word diversity is that it is a descriptor. It is not a verb. It is not an action verb. Desegregate, integrate. These are action verbs that put people of color at the beginning of the sentence as the subject of the sentence, having agency and taking action for themselves. The word diversity makes people of color passive on behalf of the white corporation or university that is acquiring the diversity. So and it's poly- also just not sexy. And polydemographic <laughs> is the same way. It is like, I'm going to polydemographic this newsroom. No, it's, uh, yeah, that it's doesn't also, work. But it's also just not sexy. It's not, it's not sexy. So far, the best one I've heard was amalgamagical. Yeah, but that's and a little I, that's a little like cheesy. Is it? I it just is. thought it was it's, cool. It's It's a little cheesy, okay. okay. What do you think, uh, uh, Aisha? Um, amalgamagical. That seems hard to say. Amalgamagical. Amalgamagical. It makes nah. me feel but, happy every time I say it. Polydemographic. Poly, that's even more difficult to say. Right. Polydemographic. Polydemographic. Okay, so polydemographic fails. Next. Okay. Uh, right. <laughs> Next one uh, is an objection to the entire objection from at Elena D. Lobo. Diversity doesn't need a replacement. Rather, let's re-examine and hold people who use it more accountable for its meanings. Okay, that wasn't fun. 
<laughs> We're just putting it out there just to, to have people talking and, and playing the game. It's like, but did it have a clear meaning like, to begin on. with when it started before it was just adopted as, a, as a, yeah. an amorphous every word for racial harmony? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm yawning and it's not because I'm jet lagged. Ooh. Next. <laughs> all right. And we got this voicemail. Let's hear what, okay. you all, what you all have to say. Uh, this person did not leave their name. Okay. Hey, this message is for Raquel, who asked the listeners to come up with a better term for diversity or multicultural, etc. Um, two words came immediately to mind. The first one is reconciling. Um, I recently moved to a new city and was looking for a quote-unquote diverse congregation to visit on a Sunday morning. And as I was searching the web, I came across a website that said, Arch Street UMC, a reconciling congregation. And I was immediately drawn to the site because reconciling is an active word. It means we are moving from a place of brokenness to a place of healing. And it also admits that we haven't gotten there yet. The problem isn't solved just because of diversity. And I just thought that was a great word to use, especially in an institution such as the Christian church with its history. Uh, Another word that could probably be more broadly applied is the term inclusive. Um, It's one thing to say you are diverse, as in we have black and brown people in our community, but it's an entirely different thing to say they are included and they are involved. And I think that's especially important in school districts that may be diverse, but the decision-making power is completely monopolized by one group. So those are my thoughts. Um, love the show and keep being real. Thanks. I really like both of those. I um, really liked why, right? Yeah, why yeah. Said, like the reasons that we've heard those terms before. Right. Yeah. I mean, even not to jump ahead, but like one of, if I remember correctly, one of the um, programs has the word uh, inclusion in it, uh, the diversity programs that I talked about. So I, I like I like that I like that term. I like the way he used it. I like the way that it was. It, we've heard those words before, reconciling, like a, right. But just the way that he, especially after your primer, right, right. Well, I think also you, you it, it harkens back to Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which has you know yeah. uh, larger meanings, and it is an action word, action verb, and you know it, it's almost a, you know a reckoning. You've reckoned with the past. I don't I don't know that it would it'll catch on, but I, I definitely like the the sentiment behind it. I think, and it's a real word. Yeah, I like the sentiment. It is not a it is not a jargony makeup word like microaggression. It is a real word. People used to say William Shakespeare was jargony makeup and making up words and jargony and trash and all that. And look at that, he created a whole new language. Well, the difference no, he coined the words. Big did too. There's a difference between coining words and what jargon is. And jargon is to create a language in order to uh, obfuscate, as Berenice has. We also oh. don't really speak in Shakespeare anymore. Like, well, no, it's just all been absorbed into the language. Well, I don't know. About yeah. How you say you and Shakespeare, thou? Thou. Something like that, or, yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm not even going gonna, gonna, <laughs> to go there. Okay. But you know what I mean? Yes. There's thing, there, there are words that, you know, Shakespeare is, is you saying, we don't use his words anymore, even though I do agree with you that we have absorbed some of his language in our just everyday That's usage true. that we don't even realize. Right. A lot of terms, I mean, Martha Stewart was saying bling and jiggy and all that before she did her, 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 her bid, before she really kept it real and went to jail. Right. Um, so, you know, there you go. I like creating new words, but I especially love that inclusivity, inclusive kind of like that word. That was really, really, really nice. Thank you for that. That voicemail was really cool. Inclusive is it's soft in the middle. It's, it's a little soft. it's a little mushy. Reconcile to me has more of like a maybe I'm just mm. feeling mushy today. I don't know. I just yeah. like it. OK. All right. I'm usually the hard one, but <laughs> I kind of like it. Inclusive. Uh, this is an inclusive room. 
It is. All yeah. right, AC, what do we got next? <laughs> Moving on to an email from Catherine, and she says, I just finished listening to episode number 15 about racial identity. At one point in the discussion, Raquel makes a point to differentiate between white individuals who perform black and brown and those who actually want to become a different race. Can you expand on this concept in the B-side? How is this nuance meaningful? Well, what I mean is just like, okay, Rachel Dolezal wanted to become something else, right? There are people who become something. Some, um, I, I don't remember his name, but there was an actor in the early days of Hollywood, maybe Cody, maybe you know his name. Um, he would play, portray American Indians or First Peoples. And then it was found out by like some gossip columnist that he was part original American, but also part black and part white. And he killed himself. Because he didn't want to. He just wanted to be one thing. This wasn't the Italian guy who was in the pollution no, commercial. Not, no, not, not the guy. crying. What, um, the crying Indian. The yeah. crying Indian. Okay. The crying Indian. I forgot his name, but I remember those commercials because I came up with them. Right. Um, I'd be just be like, oh, shit. Right. But he was really an Italian-American. So he, that's becoming something else. Performing races. Miley Cyrus with dreadlocks. In my, that's just the way I saw it. You know, I'm I'd sure agree with that. people are, yeah. you know, we may have different opinions. What do you think? No, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I think, I mean, I, I hate the term cultural appropriation because I feel like we, it's another word that we don't fully know what it means. Like it's, it's lost whatever meaning it originally had. But um, I do think there's a difference between like identifying with a culture and just, you know, throwing it on as a costume exactly exactly and i agree with you about culture appropriation even though i think it's still kind of embryonic yeah. still an idea that's just just dating yeah right well when when do we cross the line from appropriate and again it's appropriation and performance versus is this a coinage that's been a, just adopted as a new like is bling just a new a word now in the oed that is a word and if you walk around if i'm a white person walking around saying bling am i performing blackness or is bling just a word now no, bling has lost all its, you know, bling is like a, a non-descriptor. No one really says and, and bling. Nobody, well, nobody says, no, no, oh, that's just a bad example. Bling. But do they still bling? They, they say bling. Hmm. They say bling. Um, you know, overseas they say bling, cause it, but they don't mean it. They don't mm. say like, this is bling. They just say, oh, bling, I'm going to go buy bling. You know, like, it's, it's huh. very, it's something that's used almost in a way where we just forget how it's being used. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But I, I do know what you're saying. Like, where, where is the line, the Right, because I was, my, when I was visiting uh, my brother and, and family a few months ago, my niece was, I think, seven at the time. The she, one in Paris? No, no, no. They, they used to live in Paris. Now they live in Kentucky. Okay. Anyway, she took my iPhone and she just made like a hundred video selfie videos of herself over and over and over again. And one of them, she was like yelling, you know, like da da da. She finished up and go, yo yo yo, peace. <laughs> she's seven. That's just cuteness. That's just cute. She's seven years old. She's not appropriating. She's not performing. She's just like that's part of the vernacular now. No, that's right? different. That's, that's not what we're talking. Different. That's that's just. She's just she's just being cute. Okay, but then but where, where's the older, line between that and Miley? Does, well, I mean, well, Miley's not a seven year old girl. Well, not is only she, is she not really. <laughs> but you know what? You know what? Like this is goes back to like the last episode, Nicki Minaj, when she was talking about like okay, people like you know um, just use it again because it's so easy to use as example. Miley Cyrus, you know, performing. You know, they're like she's hosting MTV Awards. You know, trying to posture and talking about smoking weed and this and that and yeah. with Snoop Dogg and doing all this performance. But then what Nicki Minaj said was, I guess she was trying to articulate was you know it's one thing to to like what we do and kind of perform it and put your dreadlocks on take them off afterward but it's something else to try to empathize with the culture that you're trying to lift right or trying to like inhale right and, right? and her her comment the the miley, miley cyrus's comment in the new york times was like 
that was not empathy. That was shutting the conversation down. That was like just brushing her off. Yeah. I don't want to be bothered. And that's where the line, I think, is, you know, like you want to empathize. Right. There you go. Okay, so next uh, I love how you wrapping all these up, Tabby. Like, <laughs> there you go. Well and moving on. And <laughs> Well I What? <laughs> I like this. I miss Tanner. You know I miss Tanner every two weeks. I always I look forward to coming in and talking to him. She does. I she do. Does. I do. <laughs> all right. After after that very lovely moment. Here's this email from Emily, and she writes us, Hi there. I'm interested to hear more about something Rebecca Carroll said in a recent episode about diversity, inclusion, anti-oppression, anti-racism workshops. Does she think they're out of step, missing the point, compartmentalizing, poorly facilitated, just not her style? In my workplace, which is predominantly white, we've relied on workshops and staff trainings like these to make space for important conversations around race and unearned privilege, among other things, while deeply flawed... I have to think they're moving us forward as an organization. Would love to hear more, Emily. So Rebecca's obviously not here, here but I, I figured you all could say. weigh in on yeah. these workshop kind of things. It kind of bothers me that 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 needs to exist. That people, adults, need to learn how to behave like human beings around people that don't look or have the same background as them. So I think they're just flawed, just because, just by inherently, because they even have to exist. Does that make any sense? No, of course. At this point, they've been lampooned out of usefulness, probably. I mean, the Office Diversity Day episode, you know, probably closed the door on these things ever being useful ever again. Um, And I feel like, you know, there are studies that show, actually, that those programs alone can actually make things worse. If they're not paired with other serious attempts at changing the broader workplace culture, that just to bring up all this racial stuff and then, all right, Everybody back to work. Mm-hmm. You know, my sort of feeling on this sort of thing and, you know, a lot of these 12-step racial solutions that grew out of the political correctness <laughs> diversity movement in, in the 90s is that, like, you can only go so far. You can do a good job of teaching people not to do the wrong things, but you can't in those things teach people how to do the right things. And that's the problem with them. Anyway, in, in, those, in those meetings, right? Usually you'll have, from what I've heard from my friends who are in corporate America, you'll have white people, you know, say, airing their grievances, whatever. But then if you're a person of color, you really have to watch your step and what you say because something can come back and bite you in the ass. So it's almost like pisses you off even more because you have to play those respectability politics. Yeah. I right? mean, it's it's definitely I, – I feel like – White people tend to complain nowadays that, like, they have to step on eggshells and be careful. But like you said, in corporate America, it's very, very different. I'm not in corporate America, but I, I, I'm I, dating someone who is, and I know lots of people who are in corporate America. And you do, as a person of color, always have to watch watch what you're saying. I think that— There's no safe spaces. Yeah, there there is no safe space. Uh-huh. Even, even when you're with other people of color within— corporate america you still have to be careful she just took me to church and it's only it's only friday <laughs> that isn't that what you just said is a whole segment of a whole episode yeah that reminds me a lot of our episode remember the colorism episode mm-hmm. where you were just like what the hell you didn't know this stuff existed it's a whole other yes <laughs> so much. anywho this email from adriana adriana if you pronounce it that way forgive me had the subject, black vernacular on the page reads as uneducated. And the email starts. This statement made by Tanner is true only for people who are not well read. 
The very best, in my opinion, United States author is Mark Twain. He did an entire series where he supposedly transcribed conversations he had with a black kid where the black kid is just spouting wisdom about how the world works. Anyone who considers him him or herself well-read has read this series. In the series, the entire take the kid has on the world is totally accurate. And let's not forget Jim the Slave. He's the wisest person in the book, but he's also the person with the least educated speak. So readers who are well-read may read black vernacular as not book-educated, but certainly not as unwise. I would agree with that 100%. The call was in reference to when I said that you know, I ghost-wrote this book for the Michael Jackson's Bodyguards, and I left in a lot of the black vernacular because it was very authentic. It was very, I mean, it was very funny. It was very real. It was very honest. And they wanted me to change it. They wanted me to make him sound like Prince William and Code Switch the whole book because they didn't want to sound unprofessional and uneducated. They were, they feared that they would be perceived as unprofessional and uneducated. And I felt like that their everyday vernacular showed them as real people with real experiences and genuine firsthand. They're very smart, very, very perceptive about uh, working for Michael Jackson. And I wanted to convey that. They were the ones who wanted to change it. I'm glad that we have these B-sides because I know that's what you meant. Right. But it just sometimes, you know, when we're talking from a place of emotion and we're just trying to get our thoughts out, sometimes what we say and what we're thinking, there's like some kind of disconnect. But I got that. I got what you were saying. But I can see how this um, uh, Adriana or Adriana Mm -hmm. may have read into that one. Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Every weeknight, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. Now, that's a lot of searching and it takes a lot of work, but even in a country this big, there are no local stories. Your life and what you see from your front porch or window is directly connected to the national news. Watch Rachel as she connects the dots and covers America's news one story at a time. It's the Rachel Maddow Show, y'all. Weeknights, 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. All right, next. So we got this email from Suzanne. And she says, I don't think the lines between gender or race are expanding or changing, but I think we're becoming more accepting of all the differences. I also think acceptance of gender differences is growing faster now than acceptance of the bigger differences between skin color and culture. Something interesting, though, and Raquel, I think you'll like this kind of observation. I can't remember what form I was filling out recently, but one of the smaller categories grouped under white was something like Mediterranean and North African Semitic Arab. I don't agree with that, even though I'm not, I mean, I have um, what they would say Berber or Amazigh ancestry on one side, my paternal, my my father's direct paternal lineage. I really don't feel qualified to say one way or the other, but I think that's a generational thing. Younger people I know of Middle Eastern and Arabic descent don't identify as white. Older, their parents do. And I think that has to do more with class than anything. But maybe one day we can have somebody on that can, uh, you know, wax poetic on that. But, yeah, that's something that's that's been on my mind, too. Like, how do people see themselves? I think it's a generational thing and like a... Right. Right? Like, um, what happens when you become American? Who do you align yourself with? Or who do you feel like... Who do you feel has stories that are most similar to yours? I mean, people might, I have a good friend who's an author and an Iranian-American, and she considers herself a woman of color. From Laura, I think for episode 15B's B-side, y'all should listen to the intersection with Jamil Smith's episode, Marco Rubio and the New Cuban Identity. Just note to listeners, we have had Jamil Smith on this podcast. Uh, he was great. In Jamil Smith's episode of Intersection, the guests argue that Cubans are being embraced into the new white 
Andrea Pino, starts to discuss this around the 517 mark. While I know that speaking Spanish tends to otherize us, I grew up knowing a fair amount of Latinos, Latinas, who had no qualms about checking the white box on forms. Whether they yearned to be white or just wanted to benefit from being white passing, I don't know, but I thought I'd share nonetheless. I was on an assignment in 1997 in the Dominican Republic. I wrote one of the first pieces in, a, in an American magazine about Shakira. I was having lunch with Emilio Estefan and some of his other, and some of his, you know, uh, workers, worker bees, and one of them said to him, do you want some sunscreen, you know, to protect you from the sun? And he snapped and got really pissed, like really, and he said, wait a minute, I'm Cuban, don't you know? We're just light-skinned to dark-skinned blacks. So I saw right there where his, you know, politics and his identity politics lied. But I do see that I think a lot more people that I've met of Cuban descent who hail from Miami fall into line more with the Rubios of the world than the Estefans of the world. And also a lot of Cubans that came, you know, that they descend from are people who left or who had to to leave Cuba because of Castro. And a lot of them were, you know, from the higher social classes and and of Spanish descent, meaning Spain, Mm-hmm. And meaning that they could actually trace their lineage to wherever in Spain they were from. So, yeah, I could see. I mean, Spaniards to me are white. They're not Latino. They're not the oppressed. They're not the oppressed group. They are the oppressor. So, I mean, unless you're talking about Southern Spain and you know, you know, and all the and all of that. But, um, and generally speaking, in the Rubio and Rubio no, Rubio Rubionese. Speaking of Rubionese, Rubiosity. Rubiosity, yeah. This next voicemail is from uh, another listener who did not leave a name, but they had a question for Tanner. You all have talked a bit about the idea of white guilt. And while I understand that white guilt can be counterproductive in conversations about race and just downright annoying, I wonder if it is a necessary part of white people's journey to understand themselves and their place in history. Like what Tanner mentioned once about swimming through the sea of white guilt and climbing the mountain of white privilege to come out on the other side or something like that. This may be an egregious abuse of a brilliant term, but when thinking about white guilt, I can't help but think about W.E.B. Du Bois and his idea of double consciousness. In The Souls of Black Folk, Du Bois calls double consciousness, quote, a peculiar sensation, the sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity, end quote. Du Bois describes double consciousness as the way in which a black person in the U.S. may have two perceptions of herself. One, how she sees herself and how her community sees her. And two, how white people see her. And there's this constant struggle to reconcile these two identities. So here's my question. Do you think that white guilt could be the natural manifestation of a white person gaining this double consciousness as she begins to come to a knowledge of true history, not white-centric history, and as her eyes are open to the terrors of racism that still exist today in this country, she starts seeing herself not only through the, her own eyes, but also through the eyes of people of color in the U.S., who she is just starting to realize see her as clumped in a group that she has never identified with and has no desire to be a part of, namely the white oppressor. So is it possible for white people to have this double consciousness too? Thanks. You guys are awesome and keep up the great work. Ooh, that, I just got chills. Chills. That was very introspective and very mature for somebody who I'm. Uh, I'm just going to assume is young. <laughs> she sounded young. Yeah, she That's did. A compliment. So I think yeah the the found I you know I think I've said this before on the show and and, and various other venues that when you first 
you know, in this country, it's slavery. Elsewhere, it's the Holocaust. When you first, or something like Rwanda, you know, when you first look at it, you encounter this phase of either denial where you just shut it out and you're like, ah, it's nothing to do with me. Or if you truly engage with it, you know, like if you're an American who first reads about Rwanda, you're like, well, why we should have done more? And you get in this very moralistic, righteous, guilty, almost high horse of like very pure, very simplistic uh, outrage and guilt. And, you know, and that's your first reaction to it. And quite naturally so. And then I think you gradually have to move through that. The more and more I learned about racism and the history of race, for example, you know, redlining was, you know, one of the worst things that ever happened in the 20th century, plundered millions, billions of dollars of wealth from communities of color. My dad is an architect, and our entire livelihood growing up was him building houses in these white suburbs. It's every nickel that I've ever made was made on the backs of that policy, right? So... You know, when you first, ah, like, oh, that makes me feel bad, but then eventually not, because you're like, okay, that happened. And I can step back and look at that objectively and almost coldly and dispassionately to sort of break it down and take off the guilt and the moral outrage and just look at systems and history and facts and come to a sober-minded analysis of, of the present and where we go from here. I do think, you know, white guilt and white moral outrage is sort of like the first phase of engaging with this and people don't want to touch it because they don't want to go through that because it is weird and difficult but if you get through it to the other side it's so liberating to let all that go all that white anxiety all that white guilt and just be a human in the world who can like understand how these systems operate and how the world see the world more clearly it just makes you a more thoughtful and developed human being double consciousness I don't know if I would use that exact language. It's just uh, I would say it's more of a clarity of vision, seeing the world. But you know what she used, double consciousness? I've seen that myself in schools where when I was at a university, for example, in Pittsburgh, the female students, at least, that I was friends with that were, that were um, white, when they learned about you know African history, black history, black American history, Latin American history, they all of a sudden had that, like, oh, my God, how are you looking at me? How are you seeing me? And it does, they get kind of overwhelmed with that guilt. But what you're saying, which totally makes sense, is confronting it and processing it is very liberating at the end of the day, which is the reason why you made a great, great point. You could debate right now why we should not stop teaching fiction as history in America from K through 12, from K through the, the you know, this is what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, it you cripples have white people. Pri- exactly. It exactly. cripples everyone, but like it especially cripples white people. And it cripples white people and people of color. It cripples any kind of possibility of a post-racial society and of a place where even if, you know, we don't love each other, we can at least respect each other and coalesce even, maybe, in a utopian world. But that's why we should not be teaching fiction. Speaking of which, did you guys see that? Was that Slate? I read it on Slate. There was a, a textbook that called um, African, like the transatlantic slave trade and African slaves basically workers. Yes. Yeah. 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 That was bullshit, wasn't it? That's some <laughs> bullshit. It was, it was not good. No. Not at all. <laughs> and on that note, right? On that note. <laughs> all right. So we'll, we'll wrap up the B-side there. Thank you all uh, for your emails and voicemails and comments. Keep them coming. It keeps us honest. It fact-checks us. It makes us rethink and, and revisit things. And please, send us your voice memos. We like hearing you. Increases your odds of being on the air. 
and uh, makes for a more interesting listener experience. As wonderful as AC's voice is, we want to hear from you. Thanks, and uh, stay tuned, and in a little bit, you'll hear this week's show. <laughs>